So there are uh, some some interesting synergies happening between Dharma and science. Um, increasingly, a kind of scientific lens. Is it a little loud, or is it okay? Okay. Um, so increasingly, a kind of terrain that that has been the province of you know dharma buddhist stuff is is being examined from a scientific perspective and um it it's starting to get interesting i feel like it's uh it's starting i i'm actually starting to feel i've been following that literature for some years but it's 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 starting to the the research around mindfulness meditation is maturing to the point <clears throat> where I think pretty soon it's it's actually going to be meaningful enough that it will in, really inform how we teach in a way, and that's that's interesting to to recognize like oh they're actually generating enough interesting data that I feel sort of responsible to be. Uh, responsive to to what what we're learning now. <clears throat> so this is um, uh, Judd Brewer and Nicholas Van Dam and some others, Willoughby Britton, who um, uh, last year published published something that um, is based on a kind of ancient Buddhist personality structure of. Greed, hate, delusion, yeah? Those, those familiar sort of like, everyone has a favorite way to suffer, yeah? And you can, greed, hate, delusion, I'll speak about this and we'll, then we'll focus in specifically on one. So this is, uh, this is uh, Van Damme and Brewer. Um, Even at the level of a single-celled organism, behavior must necessarily fall into one of three possible categories. Move towards, approach, move away, withdraw, or neither, no response. These three basic options cannot be reduced further and therefore would seem to represent the most parsimonious description of behavioral tendencies. Approach, avoid, ignore. Yeah? Familiar, yeah? The greed, aversion or hatred, delusion, yeah? Um, and so... Yeah, the, the, her Jack uh, characterizing, you know, the sort of like uh, the 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 mind of greed walking into a room and seeing what you like, you know, like I could go for those ceilings in my place, or you know, right, or um, the uh, kind of aversive side, yeah, like I don't know. You know. It's pretty nice in here. But aversion types, of which I am one, can find causes for objection, yeah? Right? My fellow aversion types, yeah? We're, we're doing our homework all the time, <laughs> yeah? And then, and then delusion of, of, of not noticing. And personality is never neat when you actually like study it in a in a scientific way it's never totally neat and we all actually share in each of these characteristics um but you may notice a kind of general orientation and the researchers actually designed a a kind of questionnaire and and validated it scientifically for for questions to actually identify one's type. And they even went so far as to suggest that maybe in the future, the way meditation is taught, we might like all fill out a questionnaire to diagnose ourselves. Because the, the practice instructions actually for somebody who's predominantly aversive are different than somebody who's predominantly grasping, greedy, yeah, or, or deluded. 
So um, they go on to say, um, uh, and they they also acknowledge like there's it's not just a negative side. I'm calling it greed, hate, delusion, but there's there's a positive upshot of each of these three temperaments. Yeah. So they, the authors go on to say, well, the greedy, faithful, and the aversive, discerning types are characterized by their strong motivational tendency of either grasping or pushing away. The deluded, speculative type is distinguished by the absence of a strong motivational tendency. It's characterized by a lack of awareness of present conditions, whether pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. As a result, deluded types tend not to have strong immediate reactions and not hold to fixed opinions. On the positive side, this allows for creativity, being open to many possible options, and thinking outside the box. On the negative side, the deluded type can seem lost or scattered, prone to following the opinions of others because of uncertainty. So I wanted to to talk about uh, about delusion uh, tonight, and uh, it's important insofar as you know that in some sense there are these three types, but uh, in another way, the Buddha said that we we really suffer as a function of ignorance, of of not seeing clearly, and. So this is, in a sense, relevant for all of us. And it's for sure the hardest habit energy to spot because greed is like not subtle, right? Like like if it, on the small scale, or like just walking past the cookies, you know, like it's not like a subtle force in the mind where it's like, oh yeah, cookies yeah right and then sometimes it gets very intense for for some desired object and hatred like the kind of burn you know the the buddha likened it to 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 fire and the kind of uh you know boiling water the burning of it and it just announces itself very clearly right it's it's not it does not take exquisite level of mindfulness to identify greed and aversion. Yeah. But delusion, that just feels like the truth, you know? Right? So, in a uh, now, now famous um, commencement address from David Foster Wallace, uh, I think it's maybe called This is Water, um, I don't know whether there was a cartoon or he's just talking about it, but he just he sort of like draws an image in the mind where he says, "There's there's a big fish swimming this way and two little fish swimming this way, and as the big fish swims by, says to the two little fish, like, "Hey boys, how's the water?" And then in the next frame, uh, you see the. Uh, you know, you see the kind of big fish swimming on and the two little fish are talking to each other. And uh, one little fish says to the other, like, what the hell is water? Yeah, right? And uh, delusion functions this way, right? Like the, the default assumption of our mind is basically that we're working with the truth as best we can, yeah? As best we can cobble together the truth, we're working with it, right? Because if we thought we were wrong, we would think the other thing, yeah? So this is um, a favorite uh, quote from from Catherine Schultz in her book, uh, um, Being Wrong, Adventures in the Margin of Error. Um, this is this goes out to all the the perfectionists in the room too. Uh, so she writes, um, 
most of us go out, uh, most of us go through life assuming that we're basically right basically all the time about basically everything. <laughs> as absurd as it sounds when we stop to think about it, our steady state seems to be one of unconsciously assuming we are very close to omniscient, all-knowing. If we relish being right and regard it as our natural state, you can guess how we feel about being wrong. For one thing, we tend to view it as rare and bizarre. For another, it leaves us feeling ashamed. Of all the things we're wrong about, this idea of error might well top the list. We are wrong about what it means to be wrong. Far from being a sign of intellectual inferiority, the capacity to err is crucial to human cognition. Far from being a moral flaw, it is inextricable from some of our most humane and honorable qualities. And far from being a mark of indifference or intolerance, wrongness is a vital part of how we learn and change. Thanks to error, we can revise our understanding of ourselves and amend our ideas about the world. However disorienting, difficult, or humbling our mistakes might be, it is ultimately wrongness, not rightness, that can teach us who we are. So that turning of the heart like towards error and not seeing and our own confusion is so uh, so important to do that in a way that um, uh, does not um, sort of cast any sort of shadow over our sense of dignity like the I mean the Dharma is it's yeah it's just like um, a kind of march through many layers of delusion, you know, and um, the the as the the practice deepens through the realization of like, whoa, I was under this a spell of sorts, you know, and maybe it was a spell that I have lived with since I can remember. Uh, but when it's it's broken, something is freed up, and that doesn't just happen once, or that that's not how I, I, I see the path unfolding. It's like no, actually, many times we must we are asked to give up uh, mistaken notions of who we are, of what's possible, of what happiness is. And so um, the kind of evolution, the way that that delusion is like, it, 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 it feels to me very much like a thawing process. You know, it, it can't really be rushed. It's this sort of like gradual accumulation of, of moments of clarity and a willingness to be wrong. And it starts to, like, it, it, it just has this... Uh, yeah, just a certain kind of like richness that I start to hear in how people reflect on their lives and on happiness and on how they, what they want to do with their days. There's a kind of, yeah, this just, um, you can just feel some of the delusion starting to melt away. And sometimes it comes in a big burst and sometimes it's this very gradual process of like, just, yeah, marinating in awareness day after day. So, so what do we do? Um, first, I, I think we, we actually check in to see how interested we are, you know? Like, are, are we interested in looking deeply into the ways our, our view is conditioned. And something that um, Michelle McDonald, uh, insight teacher, said that I so appreciate is like, if, 
if we're not actually interested, we don't have to like fake it, you know? Like if we're not interested in seeing more, that's okay. Maybe it's not the right time or that's not the right approach for practice. But if we are interested, then there's this kind of, um, yes, something comes alive in us. Yeah, something. It's just like, wow, I, you know, I don't care what I learn. I just want to see more. I don't, I don't even care what it does to my happiness. I just want to see more. It's a, a kind of powerful turning of the heart. One of my friends, um, teaching colleague, uh, Chris McKenna said like, you know, if you want to know your conditioning, you will. And if you don't, you won't. And so we actually check in, like, this: the path into, like, through delusion is always more than we bargain for, you know? Because it, it literally, like by definition, it just can't be anticipated what we see, what we're asked to let go of. And we, we have a certain kind of like implicit promise that it leads to more peace, that it leads to, to freedom. But we can't really know that in a way. We are always taking a step into the unknown present. So we establish the willingness, a certain kind of um, a humility and, and a certain kind of care for ourselves, like that, that, that the, the sort of discoveries we make, they may be humbling, but they need not be humiliating. We, we need not like take the discoveries of this path as a commentary about the deepest sense of who we are. There's just like a, a wish to see and a sort of a, a sense that we're not going to wind up indicting ourselves for something. It's like it's, we're going to discover, if anything, our innocence. Yeah. So we, we begin by, by integrating um, wise view. And by this, I mean we we sort of like start we start seeding the mind with um, the the reflections, the contemplations that the Buddha emphasized most centrally. And so, uh, for me, the way this has arisen is like so many distinctions distinctions between a good and bad and you know like right and wrong and you know self and other like all of those bow to a much more fundamental distinction between suffering and freedom from suffering like that's actually how we start to to understand our lives and understand our our behavior that that at some level are, you know, the, the conscious experience of suffering and its absence will forever be the concern of living creatures, you know. Like that is the ultimate distinction in an important sense. Suffering, freedom from suffering. And in starting to actually seed the mind with that kind of view, we are we, it actually cuts through much of the kind of melodrama of the ordinary ways we look. The kind of, um, the distinctions that, that drive so much of, right, of praise and blame and gain and loss, pleasure and pain. So we really actually start to tune in to, and, and see our lives like begin to interpret them in the light of the Four Noble Truths. Yeah. 
we, we prepare our mind to see delusion, it, it's very helpful just to get quiet. In the busyness of the mind, it's, it's hard to even see what, where we place our redemptive hopes. Yeah? It's like actually obscured by the busyness and the clinging. We actually can't really see what we're holding out for. We can't adequately see the contours of the philosophy of happiness that is animating our life. And so we start to get quiet and begin to actually sense in to the, the... the, we start to actually hear our beliefs. We start to hear our commitments, to sense them more clearly and, and to see like, yeah, what, where, where, what are we committed to? It, we, it's very hard to do that unless you start to get quiet, to see the contours of the mind more clearly. Greed, uh, greed, aversion, and delusion are also like very um, entangled. And so sometimes it's like the greed and the aversion can be a kind of smoke signal to look for delusion. Because what, what I, I see happening in my mind is that essentially... I'm using delusion to rationalize my greed and a hatred, yeah? And it's like spinning these kind of tails that somehow make the other forms of clinging more dignified or acceptable, yeah? Does that make sense? So it comes up often, like, but I am... yeah, a very a dear, dear uh, friend who um, and Dharma person who was was uh, you know just had a kind of emotional event in in their life that was pain, very painful, a kind of real deep betrayal, and and um, and he is. Uh, He's extremely persuasive character with others and with himself. Yeah. And so from that initial impact of the sense of pain and betrayal spun a whole elaborate kind of story that effectively justified vindictiveness. And it looked beautiful. It, the, the logic of it, the logic of it was like nice, tight logic, clean reasoning, yeah? Um, and, you know, potentially that could have been like the blueprint for the next year of behavior, you know? And sometimes those kinds of blueprints are with us our whole life. Like we're, we're actively living out the, uh, that kind of delusion. But we actually can trace it back. What did we actually fail to metabolize in the moment? In this case, that the kind of like searing pain of betrayal, of hurt, to the extent that that is actually um, felt through completely, the rationalization there's no there's no more fuel to rationalize the vindictiveness. There's no more fuel to kind of spin the deluded story of their wrongness. Instead, we actually stay much closer in to the the pain of that episode yeah and we are like 
unwilling to be seduced by our own you know persuasiveness our own our own logic the logic that is like the steam coming off of the engine of of uh, greed or aversion yeah and so the encouragement is to to really uh, actually uh, to look carefully like how do we justify our you know, like what stories do we tell about what we want and what we hate? And what what is being suggested is not, we don't have to actually give up all of our preferences or something like that, but it is to have a radically honest relationship with um, our wants and our dislikes. And and um, not to kind of pull a fast one on ourselves, yeah. As I said, some of this is, you know, maybe like very trivial sorts of examples, and and sometimes we find like that we we've in in you know been ensnared in a kind of. Um, a narrative that is uh, essentially diverting our attention from our own pain, but at a deep cost. Yeah. This is Sayadaw Tejaniya. Understanding that something is not beneficial is very different from thinking or judging that something is not good. If the mind labels something as good, there is craving already. With any object that arises, delusions already on the scene, delusion conceals an object's natural characteristics, but not the object itself, and labels it as good or bad. Greed or aversion then do their work of grasping or rejecting. So how are we going to meditate? Meditation is the recognition of gross and subtle forms of craving, aversion, and delusion, and all their relatives that are present in the mind while it is observing objects. We all have um, our own level of tolerance for confusion. Um, I think some of us are like, none of us are super tolerant of confusion. It's not a very comfortable mind state just to be like, I don't know what's happening, yeah? But sometimes, you know, we're all like along the spectrum of like... uh, tolerance or intolerance of uh, not knowing. And I come, I have a a whole like family lineage of highly intolerant uh, to like not know. Even just like the slightest ambiguity is the cause for like panic in my family, you know, like, and um, there's something in, you know, there's something about, uh, the kind of, yeah, the sense of not knowing, which is also a kind of fundamental trope on this path, but the sense of not knowing where we just like try to think the hell out of things, you know, like, but we're really like trying to solve, you know, we're trying to like solve the problem with with the wrong instrument in a way. We're trying to solve it in the realm of papancha, you know, of proliferative kind of thought. This is um, Philip Moffat. Um, From a Buddhist psychological perspective, when you're caught in debilitating ambivalence or ambiguity, your mind is either deluded and clinging to the desire for life to be perfect, or it's afraid and wanting a guarantee that what you are doing is the right thing to do. 
or it's refusing to participate in the dance of life due to some unconscious or conscious aversion to uncertainty and potential loss. These mind states begin to limit your capacity to live fully and you're less effective in meeting your goals in the areas where they manifest. When ambivalence is debilitating, your mind is in a flu-like state and reality is obscured. You feel stuck, dissatisfied, restless, or uncertain. In the language of Buddhist psychology, you lack clear comprehension, sampajanya, of what's being called for and how you might respond to that call. So sometimes delusion is easier to see and sometimes it's uh, more subtle. And in some ways we're most worried about like the, the subtlest forms of delusion because they, they just are completely disguised, you know. So a few things on sort of ferreting out these like places of delusion, ways to see, um, yeah, smoke signals to like actually uh, where we might turn the attention. So one is is to actually track the arousal level. So in in, I think, like when the mind is in a certain kind of diluted fog, there's often a sense of like deadness and flatness or hyper arousal. So when you actually notice the the system, the kind of energy of, of the body, mind, like when you notice like, oh, I just, there's a certain lack of, of vitality, flatness, deadness, or there's like um, a, a kind of, yeah, really like hyper aroused, over energized. That that is a that's a sign. Like, okay, what's what is happening here? Yeah, what like what is how are, are my views constellating in the in that moment of deadness or hyper arousal? We track our um, our sila, our conduct many, many reasons to hold, you know, our sila close to the heart, but um, also actually is a kind of feedback mechanism for seeing where we're actually holding on, where it's hard to let go. And so... um, we can look, um, interrogate our sila, interrogate like the ways in which we're maybe secretive about any aspects of our life. Freud said that uh, that humans we're, we're we're like I think he said something like we're we're the animals that keep secrets, and. I find it like very important to actually see where it feels like we cannot have transparency as a kind of guide to the places where confusion may be reigning. So this is um, Sam Harris. He says, when you give yourself the out of lying, you deny yourself the kinds of collisions with reality that are necessary to improve your life. A commitment to honesty is a mirror you hold up to yourself where you can discover who you are in relation to others and in relation to your moment-to-moment experience. So what do we, what do we look for? maybe you know those moments where life is sort of like proceeding along in a predictable kind of way and then something happens like and it just sort of disrupts the narrative of who you are or what matters most or what you want to be 
And this might be a dramatic moment, but it might just be like something little. You were surprised by your reaction. You were surprised by the impact of something on you. And all of a sudden, like the ordinary um, story of self is disrupted in some way. It gets like ra- the cage of self gets rattled in some way. Do, do, is that that makes sense? Do you know those moments where it's like, yeah, there's just like a little bit of a sense of um, disorientation, or you're like you realize like, oh, I've been nursing a certain narrative of myself, my life. And then something disrupts it and, and it brings into reprieve, like you actually get to see the outline of that narrative more clearly. Yeah. And so this is actually, normally we like, scramble so hard to like reestablish the ground, right? You, do you know that the, the kind of like the disorientation when there's like a little fracture in the story of self? Yeah? Like maybe something happens, yeah? I mean, the whole world is basically an ego challenge anyway. So it's like something's going to happen. And then a lot of times the kind of like attempt is like we scramble so deeply to like, because that that narrative of self is so much a kind of reference point and it, it, ties, it ties the room together, you know? To quote the Big Lebowski, um, that that it's like when when there's like a kind of crack in that sort of narrative, there's this real like uh, that's just the reference point for everything. And so, rather than actually taking it as a kind of opportunity to investigate the views that we've held. We um, we like scramble to like reestablish the ground to like reinforce the the edifice of self. Yeah. So instead, we want to actually take that as a as an opportunity. So. On some retreat with uh, one of was one of my main teachers, uh, Shinzen Young. He said, um, he said it kind of offhandedly. He said there are two maxims of spiritual practice, you know, and the implication was like these two are kind of all you need, and just follow this. Yeah. So he said, first, don't fight with yourself at any level. Yeah, that that means a lot. Like, like, what would that actually be like to have a completely frictionless experience with the moment? Okay, that one made sense. The second one, take feedback. Yeah, and by that he meant like literal feedback. Yeah, and. Uh, that is so critical because I think no matter how committed to actually ferreting out delusion in our life, we can never see ourselves fully. And there is like the kind of perpetual risk that we are leaving something out. And so we rely on the kindness of others to actually help us see. And I think about taking feedback in both in the literal sense, but also like in a certain way, our whole path is about absorbing feedback, about learning, about living this life in a kind of experimental way, and then seeing what arises, what data is, is generated in our encounter with life. In the concrete sense of feedback, I, I do feel like um, 
it's, it's worthy of our spiritual attention to be committed to actually uh, welcoming feedback into the heart. And the truth is that um, normally when we get feedback, we like scramble to assign some to the category of like true and the others to the category of not true, yeah? Um, But the thing about this is that um, whether the feedback is on target or off, we can use it to, to... highlight the architecture of self and clinging. Whether the feedback is right or wrong, if it has an impact on us, if it disrupts something about who we think we are, that is a sign that their clinging is present. Yeah. And so we actually take that as an opportunity. We don't even have to decide whether it's true or not. We actually want to feel the impact of feedback um, as a way of seeing how we take ourselves to be the kind of, um, yeah, the, the structure of the self-view. And in that often, there we... we there's, we find delusion, yeah? We start to see more clearly. Yeah. The willingness um, to, to be wrong I, is... Um, I think it has clear kind of implications for our personal life, for our interpersonal life and, you know, with close, close ones. Um, But I, I also think about like the, the willingness to be wrong as um, A, a, a critical component of nonviolence, because um, certainty, certainty is um, is necessary for much violence, and. At the societal level, I, I I think of it as like a really like underdeveloped capacity, like to actually, um, yeah, to be to be willing to be wrong, you know? and the kind of way that actually softens the heart and makes our our um, behavior wiser, more careful, deliberate. And so, um, yeah, in a way, we're we're all uh, we're all uh, waking up to to confusions uh, that we've nursed maybe for a long time. And uh, my feeling is that that can never actually stop. I ne- I, n- no matter what I, I uh, attain in this life, I, I never want to actually stop looking at my mind as a, as a potential source of, of delusion. Yeah. And that kind of, I, I feel like that, that's a willingness that, um, that actually... Uh, serves us individually and in our families and in our communities and more broadly. So it it takes on a kind of, it really does take on a kind of like, uh, it's like a moral imperative, something like that around this.
And then we just like keep spiraling into deeper and deeper understanding. Now, one last important footnote on this talk. Uh, you know, as, as teachers, we teach inevitably. We share our wisdom and our delusion. <laughs> you can trace out the implications of that, right? Yeah, like, so... Uh, it's what leads me always to uh, ask for your understanding and forgiveness. And um, uh, yeah, to, uh, to pick up whatever is, uh, is useful and, uh, and leave the rest behind. So uh, thank you. So we have uh, a few minutes for for uh, questions or comments, fee- feedback. <laughs> Should be careful what I ask for. Thank you. Sure. Really beautiful talk tonight. Um, I want to ask about a couple of things that you said that somehow are feeling really tied to me. And one was the quote from Christina around the gesture of awareness redeems pain, which really struck a chord for me, um, especially in the face of pain that can be really acute. Mm. You know, as it's been these last many weeks. Yeah. yeah. And and kind of related to that, like just unpacking that a little bit deeper, is the thing that you just said around. Let's see, I wrote it down. That the discoveries, you know, when we're un, when we're really willing to look at delusion. That the discoveries we make are an opportunity for humility, not punishment. Mm. And if anything, we discover our innocence. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And those, yeah, our innocence. And that really, there's something in that that, like my, I want to know, I want to hear more about that. Mm. And maybe it's the delusion of the freedom of suffering if I get a good answer. <laughs> yeah. There's, yeah. there's something in, in that willingness to look at pain and doing it in some kind of way that's yeah freeing yeah 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 that's what i'm getting at yeah thanks um yeah well well i i don't want to put words in christina she didn't exactly say that uh about pain or redeem you know uh kind of like the redemption of of pain through awareness um but i i feel like that's implied and i i just in my in my path of practice when i like think about like well okay it's now 17 years i've been practicing and um uh, when I think about like the rhythms of it, just like day in, day out, through you know, through daily practice and my life and retreat, and um, it it just feels like this very slow, gradual process of having my heart softened by the intensity of the human condition. 
and in a way i i came I, I before i even knew i was looking for a path i was i was looking for a way to make sense of the intensity of being human you know and the, it just seemed like the most urgent matter you know like everybody was kind of like pretending like it wasn't a big deal to be human but i was like 10 and freaking out and i was like had a pretty good life you know but it was just like what is this like like it's just like life is just like just a barrage it's just overwhelming and as I think through my kind of practice, it, it, it was just like moment by moment, just blessing the intensity with a kind of patience, clarity, and love. And it's definitely humbling. That is just like, there's, there's just... I, maybe you know this experience of just like sitting with maybe maybe it's pain or heartache or something and when you like really touch into that and then the bell rings at the end there's just like all of our arrogance and grandiosity is just like broken down you know it's just like and there's a softness and a kind of yeah, quiet and no compulsion to make anyone do anything or believe anything. And, um, you know, the years of practice, like that's, that's just one of the main kind of themes. I'm just like bearing with my life and in that, like, with that equanimity, like of just of just allowing, allowing. It, it had the, the effect of something being being softened. Whereas normally, like, pain is a cause for hardening rather than softening of the heart, you know? And in a way, in every moment, life is softening or hardening our heart. And the Dharma path, to me, is just like to the extent that we can, uh, I'm going to try to like move with this moment such that it softens my heart. And okay, maybe there are times when the heart hardens, but I'm, I'm not, I'm going to catch that sooner than I otherwise would have. I'm not going to start actually living and developing a whole elaborate philosophy of life from that hardening. Yeah. It's possible to do that. You know, it's really, it's possible to like, to, to justify our close-heartedness in sneaky ways. Yeah. And so some of what we're doing is just like, just catching that, that earlier. And, uh, and this actually, my experience is that it, it generates um, more kind of like playfulness, actually. So like, it's not, it's not like the pain becomes, the pain is like deeply honored, but it doesn't make us sort of like deadly serious. And there's actually more fluidity in our emotional life. There's a kind of more, more like this more easeful return to homeostatic balance. And then, and then the next moment is here. And maybe the last moment was tragedy, but that's not in conflict with this moment of, uh, of, delight or love or something. Yeah. Yeah. And then just the last piece of like, you know, the innocence piece. That's a whole, whole Dharma talk. But, um, uh, 
maybe just say it like that, that we, Mark Twain said, self-knowledge doesn't always come as good news, yeah? But, uh, um, what I would say is that, that we keep following the thread and the, the story of self does not end in pain. We keep looking. Just the tone by which you're asking the question, mostly keep going, follow that. Whatever, where, whatever asks the question, just keep, keep going. Thank you for the talk. That was really nice. I appreciate it. Sure. And um, I guess this is more of a practical question. Mm. Um, But I find mindfulness, compassion really important to me now. And uh, there's certain questions that I can't answer myself. How do I find a teacher? How did you find a teacher? How do I continue? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, may, come on, come on up after, and I'll, I can I can chat with you and make some some suggestions here a little bit. Is that is that okay? That yeah. Good. yeah, it's weird because every people different different people come here and they talk about my teacher and this teacher and what does that mean and and it actually the way that word is used is like has a lot of different meanings that so some people might have had very you know deep you know like monastic contact with that person and other people it's like no they just sat a lot with them and might have talked to them, you know, just a little bit. So anyway, let's let's chat and I can make some suggestions. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, sure. So, I love the way you think. And I've long been fascinated with the concept of being willing to be wrong. But I've kept it kind of as a concept. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I also remember that, uh, do you remember the EST training? And Werner Herhard? And we did a lot with being willing to be wrong. Mm. I didn't know that. Mm. Yeah. You might want to look into that. And uh, so I've rationalized it's that if I'm willing to be wrong, I'm actually right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 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 a little tricky. Yeah, that's tricky. That's tricky. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, we we have to um, we have to make do with what you know, with like the the data at hand and our our capacities to understand. We have to make do with that, and all of this talk is not, you know, it's not meant to like generate any sense of like deep self-doubt, you know, like, and, and a sort of, like, a, a constant questioning or kind of, of, of one's rightness. But it's this kind of, like, it's, it's really a sort of spirit of the, of the heart of just, like, um, we're not so emotionally identified with being right that it actually constricts our ability to see anomalous data 
you know, data that doesn't quite fit in. Yeah. Because like there's just such a deep tendency, you know, it's been characterized in cognitive science of just like we're, we're looking for evidence to confirm what we already believe. Yeah. And it's a, there's a certain kind of like courage and flexibility and willingness just to be open, to be open. And um, I, I, I feel like, you know, it, it's really, um, there's something like dignified about it. You know, there's something dignified about that willingness. And there's something just, yeah, cramped and contracted about being, you know, there's the unwillingness to learn. That is, that's a tragic and dangerous situation, you know. And so we just we just incline the heart in that way, and and we uh, we do what we can. So let's just sit for a moment. So may we all uh, learn from our lives. And may that learning soften the heart. May that heart overflow such that our lives become a cause for less suffering, more safety and peace in the world. Thank you. Just um, one or two things, um, Cornelius. Thank you again. And thanks. Thanks. This is like um, it takes a lot, a lot to just sit in a room quietly. And so, thanks for for staff and lovely volunteers and everybody to um, to make this uh, possible. It's great, great, uh, beautiful. Um, there is a uh, a non-residential retreat coming up this um, uh, Friday. Begins on the twenty seventh. Uh, Dharma and recovery intensive Buddhism and the twelve steps. And I make that announcement because the person leading it, Kevin Griffin, is both uh, a friend and a beloved colleague, and in the room. And so uh, um, that there you go. Hey, Kevin. Yeah. A fellow aversive type, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, uh, I'll hang around for a bit if you have any uh, questions. And uh, thank you for your uh, your practice.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.